The following presentation has been prepared by the Video Tax News team for Canadian tax and financial professionals. Program recorded January 22nd, 2024. Enjoy! Welcome to the February edition of Life in the Tax Lane. Made it through January. Check! Working on February. Hugh Joe, how you doing? Well, winter arrived. Uh, February edition. Do I want to watch this on Valentine's Day with my wife? Or do I want to watch it a couple of days before and then I don't have to get a present because I won't have a wife. Just <laughs> <laughs> to you. Very efficient. Oh, my gosh. All right. Well, let's get this love episode commenced here. And I want to start off with the UHT because so many of us love that. Uh, <laughs> not. Um, the underused housing tax, we know for 2022, it, it could have applied in a in very broad uh, number of situations. So the question was put to CRA. Are people actually filing the returns? How much tax is being collected? And we got a response. So December 14, as of that date, we had about $30 million of UHT, which had been assessed. CRA also mentioned that only 1.69% of returns filed actually had some amount outstanding. And then finally, how many returns uh, were in the sort of the final process or had been finalized by that point? 426,000, so a significant number of them there. So there you go. There, there are just some numbers to chew on. Hugh, Kate? Well, I got to say, Joe, I'm surprised they've collected that much because I didn't think most of the people who would be subject to the tax lived in Canada and were even aware of it. But uh, those numbers seem awfully small overall. I think there's mm -hmm. a lot of unfiled returns out there, which won't surprise any of us. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Well, an easy way to step in a minefield, and this unfortunately hits a lot of inexperienced individuals, uh, is a concept CRA has on a clearance certificate. I'm a mm -hmm. trustee of a trust or an executor of an estate. Somewhere back in the history, there's some tax owing, maybe by that deceased individual. I am supposed to go to CRA and say, we propose to distribute money to the beneficiaries. Please approve that by telling me that there's nothing outstanding first. And sometimes that doesn't happen because beneficiaries pressure the executor or the executor just wants to get it done and maybe doesn't even know about this rule. Well, can I fix it afterwards, though? I've already distributed the money, but let's go ask for clearance now, and that should straighten it up, right? Uh, well, according to CRA, and I think they're probably right, wrong. Once you handed that money over, you're personally liable for any tax that may have been owing up to that balance amount that you gave away to the beneficiaries. And we've seen cases in the past that say you can't even chase the beneficiaries for this effectively. So probably want to take those clearance certificates fairly seriously and get legal advice if you're thinking of not getting one. Mm -hmm. So timing issues there, very important. Get that clearance certificate before distributing assets. Another court case or another article we have here, still dealing with the importance of timing issues, and it has to do with CPB, CPP survivor payments. So the whole concept here is if your spouse passes away, was a contributor to the CPP plan, uh, they die, you can get a CPP survivor benefit payment on that monthly basis. Now, if you're married, you can get it. What if you're a common law partner? Yes, they also fall within the legislation. However, in order to be considered a common law partner for these survivor benefit payments, you need to have cohabited with that contributor 
in the conjugal relationship for at least a one-year period. If you don't meet that one-year period threshold, don't off your spouse yet. Get to that one-year threshold, and then all bets are off. So you can get that survivor benefit payment. We had a court case this month where the taxpayer was together with their um, with that individual for only seven months didn't meet the threshold, the surviving partner uh, didn't get that CPP survivor benefit. So it's a pretty hard cut off there. You know, and Caitlin, where this could blow up is when you maybe haven't, uh, you've separated from your spouse, you haven't divorced yet, but then you uh, get into a common law relationship and you're there yeah. seven months, eight months. Well, guess who wins? It's that person that you haven't quite divorced from who's going to be the beneficiary, going to be able to get it. So mm-hmm. once you get to that year point, though, the priority goes to the common law party. Yeah, Crack that champagne. There, well, okay, whatever. Uh, let's move on to the next point here, employee versus a contractor. So we had a situation here where um, we had a worker that was providing treatment plans in respect of autism spectrum disorder. And we had the payer um, who was given quite a bit of guidance in terms of how these workers were supposed to do their job. And the thing is, if a worker is treated like an employee, even though they're supposed to be a contractor, then that means the employer has to pay uh, the source deduction, so EI, CPP, things like that. And they're going to be on the hook for all of those types of things. Now, in a situation where you've kind of got this I don't want to call it micromanaging, but when you have too many of these rules, it could slip you into that employee category like this case that we saw here. Now, in this situation, there were a number of emails and texts with instructions for these workers saying things like uh, the the client break times are limited to a max of three minutes. Uh, Clinic timers and not cell phone timers should be used. Lesson plans could not be deviated from. If we catch you using your phone for personal reasons when you should not be, there's going to be consequences. Got to arrive there 10 minutes earlier before certain sessions, things like that. So all those things went above and beyond, and they were considered employees at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You really should have called it micromanaging, but you should have been doing it on the downswing of your hand motions, not the upswing. And good <laughs> job being an independent contractor anyway. But, uh, you know, finance has been busy little beavers uh, releasing draft legislation. And uh, we got our draft legislation on those short-term rental rules that were announced a couple of months ago in principle saying if you're doing short-term rental like airbnb i don't know how else you would do that uh, without a platform to back you up uh, then you're not getting your expenses deducted unless you're in compliance with the rules and uh, i think a lot of us could get behind the theory of well if you're not allowed to be doing that based on local municipal rules okay well you're breaking the rules why should i feel sorry for you but when you read through it and said oh, all I got to do is miss a license or a permit and I'm offside. That became a little scarier. Well, now we have the I's dotted, the T's crossed, at least the draft legislation that tells us that uh, short-term rental doesn't get up to 90-day periods. So if you're only leasing for one-week shots, that's what we knew was going to be in there. Whether there's a lot that are between 60 and 90, probably not. Uh, When am I non-compliant? Because that's when I'm worried about not getting my deductions. Well, when what I'm doing isn't in accordance with the local municipal or provincial rules, or when I'm just missing one of those permits. And that was a real concern. But finance said, you know what? People are going to have to take a little time to get used to this. Tell you what, if you're not on side for part of 2024, but you get on side by the end of 24 
we'll call the whole calendar 2024 year good and be upfront and keep your uh, your permits up to date in the future. So I got to think if I'm doing personal tax returns for someone with one of these rentals, I want to ask them about their permit or license costs that we can deduct this year. <gasps> you don't have those? Well, you know, you got to be on side quick, get it done before the end of 24. Uh, mm-hmm. Hey, what else do we want to talk about? Yeah, we're, we're switching gears a little bit. We're going to talk about this brand new first home savings account. As we're doing these T1s, we might start having these discussions a bit more. The whole concept, you make contributions into this FHSA. They're deductible. The assets grow tax-free. And then you pull the assets out on a non-taxable basis when you purchase that home. Now, one of the concepts that sometimes gets thrown around is the ability to use this FHSA to do some income splitting planning. And so the whole concept here is maybe you have uh, a couple, one is a high income earner, one is a low income earner. And under this kind of planning, you're thinking about the high income earner gifting 8,000 bucks to the low income earner, they take that 8k deposit it into their first home savings account. Uh, So those assets grow kind of in their name on that non-taxable basis. Now, there is a specific carve out in the act from the income attribution rules uh, in respect of these gifts that are contributed to FHSA. So that's why we can do it. The other concept here is if we have parents, they may think about gifting their adult children that $8,000 to contribute into the adult kids FHSA. Same concept there. However, uh, we do have to remember that when we make that contribution to the FHSA, it's just the contributor that gets to claim the deduction. So if they're a lower income earner, we need to be thinking about, is this the best year to use that deduction or carry it forward a few years till the kid maybe is out of university, out of college and earning a bit more cash. Uh, So a couple things to keep in mind as we're thinking about FHSAs. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, Just want to remind you, we do have our personal tax update courses coming and newbies to Ninja and also a T3. The Video Tax News team has been providing Canadian accounting professionals with practical tax information for over 40 years. Subscribe to one of our tax newsletters or join us as we present live and pre-recorded seminars relating to both personal and corporate tax. For more information, go to videotax.com. The preceding information is for general information purposes only and deals with dynamic, time-sensitive and complex matters that may not apply to particular facts or circumstances. Information provided should not be relied upon as a substitute for specialized professional advice in connection with any particular matter. For more information, go to videotax.com slash disclaimer. Copyright Video Tax News Inc. 2024. All rights reserved.